are listening to the Ivy Entrepreneur Podcast from the Pierre L. Morissette Institute for Entrepreneurship at the Ivy Business School. In this series, Ivy Entrepreneur and Ivy faculty member Eric Jansen will anchor the session. I'm here with Greg Clark, the founder of College Pro. Greg, thanks for making the time and coming in for a conversation. Glad to be here. So in some of the prep for this, I came across a quote from you. Uh, I think you're requoting or paraphrasing somebody else that necessity is the mother of invention. And when I think about your story of starting College Pro, what was the necessity that got you to start this company in the first place? Yeah, good research. They, they, that's from Thomas Alva Edison, <clears throat> one of the great inventors in American history who said, necessity is the mother of invention. I mean, there's got to be a reason why. And so the reason why for me for starting College Pro was that I, uh, I had a, a summer job that would make me $2,000 a year. And school at that time, a little while ago, was totally everything in, tuition, everything in, in living was $3,000. So I had a $1,000 gap. I had to close that gap. My father's, uh, have, there's six kids in my family, I'm the eldest of six. I thought I got to close that gap myself. So I had started looking around for ways to make a thousand bucks. So that was the gap for me. So I just need, I need a thousand bucks. What's, what can I do? What are the tools at my disposal? Let's start a painting company. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was one of the ones. Uh, I had a summer job already, a great summer job, but it, it uh, as I say, it was $2.50 an hour, 40 hours a week, 20 weeks maximum in the summer. That's two grand. So I needed uh, to make the thousand bucks, but I already had my regular days filled. So I did try a couple of things, but the one that I landed on uh, was to try to paint houses. Another buddy of mine um, from the cottage area had painted some houses the year before and uh, you know it made nearly a thousand dollars so i thought we could do it so we started up this partnership to go out and try and paint some houses what i found was interesting about your founding story so you uh typically people will build a product so they'll have something to sell and then they'll go out and sell it yours is a little bit of an interesting case in that uh you went out and sold and then figured it out afterwards so can you tell us about those super early days of how did you actually get it going yeah, sure. The yes, I hadn't thought of it that way, but yes, yes, we did. Now I was hoping, of course, that my partner, because he'd painted these houses before, he knew how to paint. I had all this, a little bit of training and other stuff. So the whole partnership idea was that I was going to do the marketing, these fancy words, selling, land the job. He would hire somebody, and he, the, he and the other people would paint the job. He would pay himself a wage, and then the uh, I would do all the accounting, and we would divide the profits. So, uh, so we said we had a handshake deal. So my job was to go out and land the job. So I tried a, a bunch of things to try to do that. So I tried these m- fancy marketing things, like I put a little ad in the, in the local um, shopper newspaper, and I got some flyers and distributed those door to door, and I got nothing. <laughs> there was nothing came from that. So I fell back on that marvelous high tech method of marketing called cold calling, which was a very scary thing to do. And uh, went through a, a lot of a lot of challenges. I was really, you know, petrified the first time I went and knocked on a door because, as you said, I really didn't know painting all that well. And I, but I did knock on enough doors that finally somebody said, uh, "Yeah, we'd like an estimate." And so that uh, I had to get started. That's uh, so. First customer came from how, how many doors did you have to knock on before you got your first? Probably about thirty. 30. Oh, that's a pretty good... So it was pretty, pretty good ratio. Yeah, pretty good ratio. Uh, you talked about the squingy toes feeling, that feeling when you walk up, you're like willing yourself to go up to that front door, but you really don't want to go up to that front door. How did you get over that? Yeah, and it's, it's a good thing to, to share, actually, because a lot of, a lot of people 
hopefully, you know, uh, watching this either have started or are about to start their own company. And it's that first, in this case, literally knocking a door, but it's that first cold call, that first time when you're actually going to put yourself forward and say, I can do a service for you. And you're just feeling they're going to look at you and go, you, why can you do this, right? And inside you're going, I don't know if I can do it, but damn, I'm going to give it my best. So that, yeah, I call it the squingy toes feeling when you go to knock on the door and every bone in your body is saying, go away, go have a coffee, go, go back, go back and play some hockey with the guys, right? It's easier. But there's a little part of you that says, I'm here, I'm going to do it. You know, like the Nike ad, just do it. You knock on the door and you make your mouth work. Didn't work too well the first couple of calls, but you make it work. And, um, and that, and that gets you through it. And so you went from, got your first customer, did everything you could to deliver a good service for that first customer. So you went and built, built the product, delivered a good service. How did college pro grow? Um, I think you tell the story a little bit about the early days and how it transitioned from, you know, one man operation with a few painters to really being an enterprise that you were tuning the machine on, but this was involved a lot more people. So what was the transition from, this is Greg's company trying to make a thousand bucks to what was that at its peak? The hundreds of 5,000 employees. Yeah. I grew to five, let's say 500 franchisees and 4,000 employees. One little piece in the transition that's important there is it did transition from a partnership to a one-person company because when I did land that first job, my partner who was going to paint the house quit. So I had to find, go and hire some painters and get them to do that job, which is another one of those forks in the road when the whole idea for the business was a partnership is gone and you persist, uh, persist to performance and you say, okay, we're still going to do this. So that was the first fork in the road for me. But I did carry on, did hire some painters and that first summer made about $3,000. And then the next summer, when it, but that was also doing my other summer job that made $2,000. So the second summer I came back and did pretty much just the painting and made $7,000. And the third summer, just the painting and it made $12,000. That's when I was, I was at Ivy the last two years and um, felt pretty good about it. And then I took off and traveled around the world with some of the money that I'd made. And uh, got to thinking about this idea, which actually we had written up in when I was in business school, which is the idea of taking this college pro microcosm of one outlet and expanding it across the country. Everybody always has this dream of going national. Got a good idea? <laughs> got to go coast to coast. Got to grow. Got to grow. grow. Yeah. So I, I drew up the idea, uh, well, when I was in, in, biz, in biz school, but didn't really, really quite believe it because you never really trust the sales number. But as I, as I traveled around the world and had spare time, I kept a little book, a little spiral notebook, and started to track things under the same chapters that I'd learned at biz school. Marketing, estimating, selling, production, personnel, accounting, HR. And um, so I'd write all these things down. So I had the beginnings of a college pro manual when I came back to uh, Canada and started to work at General Foods in uh, marketing in Toronto. But I then looked to get one franchise start. It wasn't a franchise at the time. It was a, it was a, it was a company-owned operation. I later switched to franchising. That's a different story. But um, I got one, one operation going in London. Not a great success, but enough to keep going. The next summer, I had two. Well, I'm still holding my General Foods job down. The next summer, I had six, still holding on my General Foods job. It's getting harder and harder to do that. But I made a, a promise to my fiance and between the second and the third year that she's getting tired of all these weekends living in, uh, in tents while I went and worked with franchisees selling paint jobs. I said, listen, here's the deal. If, if uh, uh, I use my good operations management training from Western, you know, the decision tree kind of thing, where I said, okay, if, if five of the six succeed, 
I'll quit General Foods and do this full time. If, th- if three or four succeed, I will, I will continue to test for another year. And if less than that, I'll, I'll drop it. And I'll work just for General Foods. I'll have a great marketing career and I'll take all my salary and spend all my salary, which half of which have been going into College Pro. I think part of her was hoping for the third option. So that's how, that's how I, I made the decision to leave and do it full time. And then the following year, I actually expanded from the six to 20 operations. And then from 20 to 40, and then 40 to 80, we kind of doubled for a number of years until we grew to uh, 500 franchises and about 4,000 painters. And how did you balance in those early days? I, you know, often people will, there's this perception that entrepreneurs are big risk takers, and that might be true to a certain extent, but often people do a good job of mitigating that risk, whether it's choosing the right partners or validating that there's a workable business there. So the you know, the 30-second story of uh, Greg Clark, founder of College Pro, quit his job and started this painting franchise and it exploded. As we peel back the layers, you actually did a pretty good job of mitigating that risk and keeping both going at the same time. How was that? Like, how would working a full-time job, which wasn't an easy job, and starting a business on the side, how did you balance the two? Well, it's a good question, but also I, I want to emphasize your your point there because we often think of entrepreneurs are guys who go parachute jumping and jump off of cliffs and stuff like good old Richard Branson. I'm not quite like that, so I did mitigate the risk both times, both both forks in the road. When I, before I I left um, my job, my summer job, I uh, I continued it on not, not not just that first summer, but partway into the second summer before I quit and did college pro full time. So that's mitigation number one. For me, it was holding two down at the same time. Same thing at General Foods. I continued to hold that job until I was sure that the microcosm was working. So the challenge that leads you, as you said, was that you're then doing two jobs at the same time and your work-life balance gets a little crazy. And I'm afraid there's not really any way to handle it. The only thing you have to do is be dead honest with the people who matter to you and uh, you know your family and your friends of, of, of what's going on and try to... You know, I guess the only way I found it to do it was I call it put the rocks in the stream. So I'd put the rocks in the stream from my personal life into my schedule first. You know, for me, it was hockey and dates with my fiance. You put those in and then the other stuff has to swim around it. If you do it the other way, it'll always, you know, and then make damn sure you keep those commitments. If you, if you do it the other way, those, those rocks will never show up. Now I was, I, I'm sure if you talk to my family and friends at the time, they would say, yeah, Greg could make those appointments, but uh, he wasn't always there, if you know what I mean. And that's 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 true. Yeah. I, 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 so a pattern that I'm seeing amongst our guests on the show is there are periods where you just need to go, you know, put your head down and work. Uh, there's some commonalities and some differences between our guests, but one is there's just a period of time, whether it's right in the beginning or growth phase or whatever, they sort of do regain some semblance, mostly of balance eventually, or whatever balance means to them in their life. But there typically is a period, could be a year, could be 10 years for some people, depending on what they're working on, where they just have to make that thing the priority. And as long as they're clear with other people that that is the priority, not that you're forgetting about everything else, but this is one of my main priorities right now, their life does seem to work around that. So did you, you were just, sounds like you were clear with family and fiance and friends, like right now I need to this is one of the big rocks. I'd like to think so. <laughs> Retrospect, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. I hope I was. I think that the, the couple of things I would add to that is, as I say, my coping tactic was to put those things in the calendar first. So you you and then stick to them, and then obviously try to be present when you're there for those. I know that I failed at that sometimes, but the second thing is you got to watch this 
don't worry, honey, it'll be better next year. Or it'll be better when I get to this milestone or this milestone. Because there's always another milestone and another milestone and another level we got to get to. And I remember reading, I read Ted Rogers' biography. And I think that's one of the challenges he faced. Like, like right towards the very end, the, you know, when they're coming to him in his hospital bed, he's asking about cell phone sales in British Columbia. And you go, oh, my goodness, Ted, right? And I read that and I went, whoa, am I doing the same thing, right? Uh, so one of the things I did when I sold College Pro is we took a year and we lived in France for a year. And that helped, it allowed College Pro to flow out of my veins. Because I, I must tell you, that, that, that sort of the day after I sold College Pro, what I wanted to do the next day was buy another business, fast. The next day. So, uh, I'm exaggerating a bit, but right. pretty close, right? Yeah. I'm one, one of my uh, good uh, friends uh, who'd, uh, who was, had been my boss at General Foods actually took me out for lunch. And he was in the mergers and acquisition business. And I, you know, I, he's congratulating me on the sale. We're having our lunch. And um, I started asking him, so uh, Scott, uh, uh, what, what's in your book? What do, what do you got for sale? And he starts talking to me a bunch of them. He goes, oh, there's Coleman's for sale. And I go, oh, I used to camp. I like camping. Tell me about that one. And he literally reached across the table and said, slow down, buddy. Slow down. He said, you know what I want you to do? I want you to, I want you to go to France. For, you've always talked about going and living in France or in England. Go to France and live and just be for a year. Don't do, just be, right? And, and given that I'm a guy who always does as I'm told, that's what I did. <laughs> I, there's a bunch of things to come back to, but I have to keep going on this track. So what was the year after you sold and you did live in France? What was what did you do for the year of just being? What did you do? Well, it's, it's great because it, it always sounds great in hindsight, but the first two or three months were agony. Because if you've had this one thing, I started college when I was 17, sold when I was 37. So, you know, I've obviously have, I have some empathy for hockey players that retire at 37, right? You go, oh, all of a sudden this thing that was the focus of my life is gone. Your P for purpose is gone. You're there with your family in this beautiful place called France. You're supposed to be having a good time. You're going, ha, ah. And I was waking up at 2 or 3 in the morning and walking around the, the streets of Aix-en-Provence and going, what am I doing? So without going too much into it, all I can say is over a slow period of time, two or three months, gradually the past slipped away, seeped away. And I could live in the present before starting to think about the future. Two little parts that helped that. One is people from my past, including people from College Pro. One, one fellow by the name of Steve Lawrence called me up in France and said, can I come over for a visit? And that meant so much to me because I used to be his boss and I was important to him. Now he still wants to see me. Why? Because he values me as a person, right? That was huge for me. A lot of little things like that. The other thing was I remember a, a day when I tried to sit down, say, after three or four months there, and I took a great big piece of paper, which I often do with you know, the, the, you know, all the, uh, you know, the quadrilateral pads on it so I can make notes and stuff. And I start at the top of the page and said, okay, when I go back, what's my goal? What I want to do? And I went, ha, ha, and I couldn't do it. And I thought, okay, that's all right. Let's just live in the present. Uh, before you even start th thinking about the future, and that was a it was a good good transition year for me. Were there other tactics that you or habits that you developed that helped you be more present? Nothing like being in the south of France, where the, w the wine is is good and the and the temperature is lovely. You wear a t shirt every day, and it's surrounded by a wonderful, loving family. I really got involved in in all the all the jobs of of of, of being a dad and and dealing with my kids. We walked them to school every day, and then my wife and I went to. Uh, Université d'Aix-en-Provence and, uh, and had to learn how to take courses in French and that all of a sudden your mind gets focused on a lot of other things right in the present which is a bloody good thing to do. Yeah, that's great. So I want to come back to um, College Pro. So there's two topics I want to get into. 
One is the, if you peel back the layers, you think about um, the systems and the processes that you and the team set up there. In my opinion, I think yours too is part of why, big part of why that company was successful. The sale at, on the surface can seem simple. It's uh, selling paint to people who need paint jobs. There's actually many other elements of selling involved at College Pro. So would you mind touching on the different levels of sales that you had to make sure we're working in order for that company to be successful? Yes. So the the, the basic microcosm of sales, you know, identify, I love, I, I spoke of Ted Rogers before, I do love his line, an entrepreneur is somebody who finds a need and fills it, finds a need and fills it. So the perfect, perfect job of a salesman is to find out the need. Now they've called you for a paint job, so that's the need, but what are their, what are their real needs? What do, they, what do they care about their home? What do they want to have done? And then you show how what you can do can fill it. Now a really good salesman, if what he has can't fill it, should say, can't do it, you know, like that great story of the of the of uh, Chris Kringle at uh, you know Miracle on Thirty Fourth Street. Sent him to Bloomingdale's, even though he's at Macy's. So that's a, a really good salesman finds a true need and fills it. So that we had to do that. There's a number of different areas where there was selling took place at College Pro. The first was we had to uh, the company had to sell the, the managers of the franchisee on taking on this opportunity. So it's a value proposition there. Here's what's in it for you. Here's what's in it for us. There's a deal there. We had to learn how to sell paint jobs, teach those managers how to sell paint jobs to customers. We also had to sell managers how to, uh, had to sell, really, had to sell painters that this would be a good job for them. So there was at least three levels of, of, of selling going on and acceptance going back and contracts being made. Here's an offer and acceptance. Here's what I'm going to do for you. Here's what you're going to do for me. And so how did you, what were the keys to success for those? I think the first one being, uh, even if I look at some of your core values, you know, it revolves around uh, finding the right people. So finding the right people for the job. So that first sell of convincing the managers to join College Pro for the summer, how did, what were the keys to success for that first sale? Well, as in all sales, you have to have a very strong value proposition, which would be your product. And ours was uh, the headline on our posters would be, you know, make at the time make seven to ten thousand dollars a summer. This is when school costs you three, so you make two to three times what you're what it'll cost you for a year, and uh, and get a real world MBA. You're going to get really good good training here. So that was the that was the benefit. That was the promise. And then how we would what was the proof of that promise? The best one we had after a while, not the beginning, was we got a lot of successful managers out there who would either put their stories in the ads or even better, if we did a presentation on campus, some of them would come and tell their stories. As you know, a case history is the best you know, success story you can have. Hmm. That's interesting. So the, the managers doing well themselves and then bottling that up somehow, either integrating that into the ads or actually having them come back with you as part of the pitch. Right. Yeah, that's good. And then what was the... The next sell, how did you make sure that those managers then delivered on the promise of College Pro? Well, so that we had to teach them how to sell to land the job in the first place, of course. But then the next challenge is they actually got to do the paint job to the, what they've just promised. And actually, a neat little, neat little thing that uh, occurred to me early on, nothing, nothing um, earth-shattering about it, but I, I, in, the old, in the old days, I, I got these tri-copy forms which was with the proposal form, you know, no, no, no carbon required NCR paper. And the first layer was the white layer and that went to the client. The second layer was the yellow layer and that, was, that was, went to the uh, manager. And the third layer was the pink layer went to the crew. So the point of it being the promise is the same to everybody. 
and whatever you promise the customer, that's what you're going to collect on, and that's what the crew is going to deliver. I mean, it's a simple little uh, symbolic device. But then we had to put together a set of systems that helped they teach the painters and the manager because they had to know how to do it themselves, how to do the painting. And so we had a, a, a system of doing that. We had uh, all the levels. We had a manual, of course, but a manual is like 10 cents. The next thing is active experimentation. We actually try it out and do it. And then concrete experience, we would have a trainer come in and for their first week on the job, we would train them how to do all the different parts of painting. And one of the first painters was, uh, first trainers for me was my brother, uh, Tim, who now lives, lives here in London. And one of the great joys of the Canadian climate is he became the, the owner of the Thunder Bay operation after I graduated. But the, one of the great joys of our climate is that uh, because it's still winter in Thunder Bay in late April and early May, he would train for me <laughs> from my operations in London and uh, Toronto. Without that, there would be no college pro. <laughs> awesome. That's great. That's great. So I focus in uh, when I'm teaching sales on sales process and... Uh, hard to do from just behind a desk. And I know that you didn't sit down, you know, in a cafe and say, what's the perfect process to go about doing sales? You actually did it on your own. Could you go a little bit deeper into how you built out that, the Bible, the book, the training manual for these managers? Sure. And it, but it, it as you say, it, it does actually start in a cafe, but I, I start with something in my hand in the cafe and that'd be, how does somebody else do it? I love to learn from others. So I, I looked at the Xerox method of selling, the IBM method of selling. I, you know, go and observe. I went to Hamburger U in, uh, for McDonald's. I wasn't able to attend it, but I could go and, and uh, look at it, learn from others. So you then start with your, with your book, uh, your, uh, how you do it, and then you practice it, you do it a lot yourself. But the, but the other thing that I think was one of the keys to success at College Pro was what I call CPI, Continuous Process Improvement. You write down how you're going to do it. This is draft number one. You go and do it. Uh, you go and observe a lot of your managers doing it. You go on field trips and you make lots of little notes and you improve it. So you improve it in the in the manual. You improve your training session and you improve your, your field sessions. So constantly, constantly it gets better. And if you keep doing that, if you improve, pick a number 1% a week, 52 weeks in a year, you're going to get 50, 50% better every year. So you started with something, which was a model of another company, yep. whatever, who, either a company in another industry who did it well. Right. Um, and then that was your starting point. Um, and then you said you spent a lot of your time in those days actually in the field, observing what people were doing that was already working today. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to... The uh, In the book, In Search of Excellence, which was key at the time, they called it Managing by Wandering Around. I used to call it hand-in-the-can management, where you got to get out and you got to see how things are actually working. And we all know the stories of business. I'm a big historian. Uh, you read a lot of history of either companies or businesses or armies where the generals don't get out and see what's happening to the troops up front. They get way out of touch really fast. The other thing I found is when you go around and visit and you have lunches with the, the guys and the gals in the field, you establish those those special relationships, not with everybody, but with just a couple of people who they learn to trust you and you trust them. So when you go to put something new through, you can call them up and you say, like, Joe, what do you think if I try this? Will it really work? And he's got enough trust in you or enough self-confidence. You know what, boss? I think that sucks. That won't work, right? Or try doing this, right? And I'll bet you all, you scratch all good leaders, they have their Joes out there that they can go to who will tell them the truth. Yeah, so you kept in touch with the front lines. That's, that's amazing. And then... You said that when you were out there, you're looking for the one percenters. What were those? 
Well, unfortunately, there are the the one percenters in terms of clients was what I was talking about. Is that I, I, I said that reverse way? Ninety nine percent of the people you'll deal with the customers are really really nice and really honest. They'll pay you on time. They'll keep their end of the deal. There are those one percent though who want to get something for nothing, and they'll they'll refuse to pay you until you do more work for them. And uh, they're a real pain to deal with. And the one percent, though, in your uh, in your observations with the group, you said you're looking to make little incremental improvements in the field, right? So, what were those one percent? Like, what were the things that you were looking at that you could make one percent improvements? Oh, they, yeah, the, the, yeah, that's what I referred to earlier. If you make one percent improvement a week, fifty-two percent of a year. So, for example, I would drop in on a on a job site. And I'd, I'd love to sort of pull up maybe a, a half a block away from the job site and then, and then wander over and watch them. I wasn't trying to, you're not trying to catch somebody to do something wrong, trying to catch them to do something right. Sometimes you would find them loafing around. But if you could, if you could come up to, say, a half a block and you sort of watch, and you watch somebody painting a window, which is in your estimating standards at a certain time, you'd watch how we did it versus how we trained to do it. And quite often you'd see they had a different way of doing it and it was faster. So you'd come up to him and uh, and 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 ask him to do another one. He's, it's always a little bit he's a little bit nervous when you're watching him, but uh, so that would be so we, catching people doing innovative things, things you hadn't thought of, uh, going with a manager and watching how he or she um, spoke to the customer, how they how they closed the customer. Almost every time you'd pick up something new, and I would I would make a little note, put it in my expando file, and take it home, and then rewrite the manual in September. And if I could, I put in the I usually could I put the name in of the person who gave that idea, so that the manual became a bit of a story. That's neat. So capturing what people are already doing in the field, literally writing it down, observing it, putting it in your file, and then that became the process. For the next year, that became part of the manual. Continuous process improvement. I think it drove some of my managers crazy sometimes. I remember one time, I didn't have a piece of paper, so I literally had to rip off the label on a paint can and and write down the idea on the back. But it was just such a good idea. I didn't want to didn't want to lose it. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, so then you, um, in terms of the measurements, aside from the guide or the the playbook that you put together did you have a name for it was there a name for the annual edition of the college pro binder it was just college pro manual the college pro manual <laughs> oh, the other name could have been the bible the bible yeah <laughs> but that was a, a bit uh, a bit too much sure um so the college pro guide the guidebook what other things did you put in place to make sure that that was being followed like what systems or habits did you put in place to make sure that this was going to be done properly well, I've always hugely believed in that phrase I got from somebody. You, it can't manage what you can't measure. So I tried to put in measures for everything. We had in excellent measures for for the sales, as 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 we've discussed. Sales is one thing that can be very much measured. Not just the outcome, did you land the sale, but all the the KPIs and the indicators that lead up to that. So we measured the heck out of that. But the other challenging thing was to measure production, and you had to measure quality. The quality of really all the all the value propositions. Are we living our value proposition with the manager? So you have one way of doing that. You're living it with the customer. Are you living it with the painter? So we put in different ways. Sometimes surveys. Sometimes soft things like we would have. I would have as I travel across the country. I would have things called franchisee advisory councils, where some of them have a town hall meeting, basically painter advisory councils, and I'd meet you know with customers. So it's always that constant radar sweep, both sometimes with quantitative measures like surveys and qu also qualitative measures like in-person meetings to try and, uh, and and find out how to improve. 
So you collected the, figured out the data that was most important. You had your KPIs. And then how regularly did you review that data? Well, for sales, it was, uh, and it was every, every week. I think as you've, as we've gotten into things like internet and social media, probably it's every day for them, some of them now. And pros and cons of measuring that every week? Well, the, the I find the week is a very good cadence for most most business measures because you, you, then you sit down on the Sunday and you plan your next week. How can we do better? And if you let it go too much longer than that, a problem can start to be feel insurmountable. And you can't, especially when it's a twenty week summer, right? For the college pro, it's very very tight. If you're behind by the end of June, you were you were in trouble. The other reason that, that we measured and published it so that that all their peers could see. On the one hand, it's it spurred competition, which can be a good thing. It also it also inspired sharing. They would see that somebody else, not too far away from them geographically, had a very high closing ratio. So they would get in touch with them. There were lots of events where managers got together and had drinks or whatever and shared stories. And you'd see those two, you know, guy or guy and a gal, sort of start chatting over. Well, how do how do you do that? And then they're they're picking up stuff. Often it's stuff that's already in the manual. But it hasn't it hasn't clicked for them. But when a when a manual tells you one thing, it's fine. When the boss tells you one thing, it's okay. But when a peer tells you that, you go, huh? And when you see it's working, right? That's right. always better feedback. That's working. I see someone else doing it. This means that I will make more money or have right. more time or whatever. So right. I'm going to start using it. Something that stood out. So my wife is a uh, college pro alumni and has amazing things to say about her experience there. Something that stood out from uh, her days there that I've adopted in some of my own businesses, the opportunity to make customers really happy. And so you'll have to correct me if this is not the right way that you did it, but it was something like every single customer when you were done, you would ask them on a scale from one to 10, how did I do? Anything less than a 10 was a fail. And it was, how do I make it right? And in some cases that meant literally, you know, some things would come up that customers wouldn't normally share. So he'd say, you know, you did an amazing job. You delivered on what you promised, but a couple of the crew stepped on my wife's flowers in the back. And so she's a little upset about that. So she'd run to the flower shop, bring them new flowers, plant all new flowers in that garden bed. And those people became really, really happy. So am I, am I, your, your wife sounds over the top stellar. Okay. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> that wasn't in the playbook. <laughs> well, it was, but I also, you also got to, got to, got to watch it. Right. Cause I, cause I, I would say to my, uh, to, to our, our, in our training sessions that the customer's not always right. The contract is what's right. That's the deal. You stick to the deal. Cause there's some customers will ask you to do stuff above and beyond. So don't think that because of, to, you know, college for a reputation going above and beyond that you have to do that. If you do it from your own free choice, as your wife seemed to do, great. And if you did damage the flowers, and that's because in our thing, we'd see we'll leave your house where we found it. So that's fine. I just, I just, I think it's just dangerous when people get this feeling that no matter what the customer asks, especially when you're a 17, 18 year old student, you think, oh, I've, I got it. Whatever they say is right. That's not true. What is it? That, that's a deal. You stick to the deal and you deliver it to absolute best of your ability. And then, by the way, they're expected to keep their part of the deal, which is to pay you, right? But they, we, you're right. We did have what we called the business reply card, and we asked people to fill it out and, and send it in. And we did also find uh, that I think the thing you may be saying there is that when people did rate us down uh, more low and we did call them back and or they made an actual formal complaint, if we got jumped on that and handled it well, because we, th- we thought we should have, because what we had done was not part of the deal, we got higher end ratings from those customers and the customers where everything went smoothly because they're just not, just not used to that in a service business. Yeah. So going above and beyond, you'd often get better 
raving fans, people that are actually going to tell a story about right. it. Yeah. That's great. So you touched on it uh, a little bit, but I want to revisit it. So what ended up happening with College Pro? I sold it in uh, 1989. And I would say the, the main reason reflecting back on it was that uh, you know, we talked about the growth curve and we expanded, you know, first across Canada and then started expanding across the United States. And I would find that as I went to a new area, I was really just repeating what I'd done the time before, which was fine, which is good. But it um, it wasn't as, uh, it's, nothing's quite as exciting as your first time you go to that door and knock on the door. It, it wasn't as much squingy toes anymore. The second thing that was happening is I'm now... 37 years old. I'm going to managers weekends, which were key parts of our, of our, of our culture. And I'm 37. I've got a wife and four kids and these managers are still 20 years old and they have much different thoughts on their mind. It's what makes for a fun weekend. And I just felt that, that gap growing. So I felt it was time to move on and, and try something else, but it was very hard to, to leave it. Cause it had been in my blood for, well, since I was 17. Yeah. Um, do you think there's opportunities for businesses like this nowadays uh, to leverage, you know, students who want to be entrepreneurs to create student businesses? Well, it's interesting because I just I, three or four people who in your class came out to me afterwards and told me some of the ideas they were working on, and some of them involve students. So I think the answer is absolutely yes. I think that the the products will be significantly different. I, th- I think the uh, there'll be some of those classic kind of service things, but so many so many more of them have to do with so many of the technical services that can be can be uh, uh, done, and students are right in the right place to do that. So I, I believe so, yes, but I think that the providing of physical services will probably be less. Yeah. Uh, last few things I want to touch on before we wrap up. Um, we were speaking about habits earlier and setting priorities. And I, it occurred to me that in our conversations, you do that really well. You have your own process for figuring out what's important and then putting time against those things. So would you mind sharing, like, what do you do? How do you evaluate or decide what's important? And then how do you actually act on those? Glad to share. But I'll also say that I did attend the last part of your class and that your whole lecture on that was superb. My, I guess I think it's superb because mine's similar. <laughs> but I, I have developed a, a habit of, I do set a- annual goals, a classic New Year's resolution, but I do them in the, in the, I have sort of three main, I call them the three P's of my life. Well, number one is people. Uh, number two is my profession. And number three is personal development. And there's sort of subsets on each one of those. I won't go through those, but I set sort of do a, a year end where I'm at and all those things. What do I, what, what do I want to do over the year? But I always find those yearly targets are they're so far away and any week to week, you know, okay, I got next week to do it. The, cl- the real thing that makes it work, as you pointed out in the class today, is what are you going to do next week? So every Sunday, ideally, I, I, I sit down and I, and I would set out uh, what things I'm going to try to get done this week to move that goal. Just move the yardsticks a little bit, maybe even just one of the goals. And I do, I do you know, sort of track daily on the, on the top three. I mean, it sounds all sort of mechanistic and, boy, it's all sort of organized and programmed. And there's a little bit of, there's a habit beneath that. But what at the end of the day, what you want that habit to do is to change your behavior in a way that moves you towards a goal that matters to you. I love that, that formula that you put up today. It was priorities plus habits equals success, right? And I think that's a very good uh, formula. Yeah. I think trying to figure out what those priorities are is challenging, you know, even for me from time to time. And how did you get down to those three the well, three Ps. And so, so the three Ps are really the buckets, right? They aren't the, the priorities of what you set underneath them. 
So, uh, so how did it come to three? I guess you used you had a wheel with seven things on it, uh, and I've looked at all those kinds of things. And over the time, I, I've just known that simplicity is better. I can three is the, you know some people speakers say is the magic number, and I like that. I can keep three things in my mind. Uh, if you can't think about your priorities when you're driving your car down the highway. They aren't priorities you know, because because there's too many of them. So that gives me three buckets, and then for each one I have sort of uh, three sort of subsets. So it, it sort of it sort of works. Um, but you're absolutely right. Your priorities, the buckets will probably stay the same, but your priorities in each one will change, certainly year by year. And so it makes you doing this sort of annual check-in. So okay, what is important under people to me this year? Obviously, the year you get married, <laughs> the wife goes right to the top of the the list there because it's the person you spend the most time with and have the most impact on your happiness. When kids come along, same thing. And I have six kids, so there's a lot of prioritizing that happens there. And uh, maybe as a transition to what you're working on now, what are your priorities nowadays? What are you up to? What are you focused on? So that there'd be priorities under people would be wife, you know, kids and friends. But under under profession, it's now bifurcated, has for about uh, 15 years. I have the for-profit side and the not-for-profit side. On the for-profit side, I have uh, uh, six entrepreneurial companies with whom I do advisory services. And generally, the, the role I'm doing is set up, set up for them an advisory board, and I usually chair the board. Then I meet on the months in between with the CEO. So, And really, if you put an umbrella over the whole thing, the real goal is to help them set their strategic goals and then hit them. Easy words to say, but as, as you know, ridiculously hard to do because the day after you set a strategic plan, as Peter Drucker said, it's out of date. So as he said, and I agree with him totally, uh, business plans are useless, but business planning is essential. Uh, but what makes business make it work is the follow-up. And that's what I see the role of the, the board is to help them follow up on what they said they were going to do. On the philanthropic side, which is hugely rewarding, as I tried to say to your class today, at this stage in my life, you take all those skills that you learned, and I'm continuing to learn as I learned in your class today, take all those skills that you're, you've been blessed with and worked on, and you're turning them towards things which will help improve it's the, you know, that classic line, well, I, well, I leave the world a little better, you know, because I, because I lived. And I'm trying to take all those skills that I've, that I've brought and try to help some organizations that it, most of the areas I've worked on has been trying to help break the cycle of poverty. Um, because, if, if so, because a society does not maximize its value if it doesn't get the value from all its citizens. I mean, the classic case was for years, women weren't able to contribute to society. So that increased our society by 50% when that came in. There's also about 20% of people who are in poverty. If, the, if they can get a better crack and getting their potential, that will raise the whole society and them themselves. And so that's where I've dedicated uh, since I started working when I uh, sold my venture capital company in 2006, since that time, I've, I've probably spent like half my week in philanthropic ventures. That's great. So this will eventually uh, be listened to by tens of thousands of people. Is there anything <laughs> that you want to hand with today or working on or people can help you with? Ah, good question. Um, the biggest uh, philanthropic venture that I'm working on now is an organization called Trails for Youth. It's just north of uh, Toronto. And I love it because, uh, just, just to give you a little background, I've, I've also worked, I, I was chairman of the Christian Resource Center in downtown Toronto for years, which works with people who are in poverty and is really just trying to help make their life a little better. But you're not really going to break the cycle there. My daughter, Tara, does tremendous job with, with an organization called Building Up, 
which is helping people who have run into real problems, either you know, addiction problems, criminal problems, mental health problems, but they, you know, they're in their sort of 20s to 40s and want to turn their life around and help them get and keep a job, which is fantastic work. I tried it at CRC and was not successful. Trails is working with kids 12 to 16 from some of the difficult areas of Toronto and helping them by taking them out to the, the, the site in, near Stouffville for one weekend a month and then two weeks in the summer to help them develop the skills and confidence to become you know contributing members to society. So that, to me, is very rewarding work because it helps break that cycle right at the very beginning. And uh, it's a fantastic organization. And, they, and they've had 500 graduates in all of whom have become contributing members of society. And about 70% go on to university. So that's very rewarding work. So if anyone who is attracted to that kind of work, give me a call. That's amazing. Well, Greg, I think uh, you've been incredibly generous with your time visiting my class and being on the podcast. And uh you know, at the surface, I, it seemed like your legacy was going to be college pro, you know, employing thousands of students over time and really giving them a foundation that can allow them to go on and be very successful in business. But I'm seeing that there's a whole different layer. You know, this is like the second or third chapter of your life. And it feels like your legacy might actually be not college pro. It might be something on the uh, on the nonprofit, on the charity or on the giving back side. Well, th- thank you. And I'm enjoying that. And I enjoyed being here today because it was learning for me, too. One of the most satisfying things to me to this day is, you know, when I, well, like hearing the story of your wife, when a, when a college role manager or a college role painter comes to me and said, I learned a lot from that. It, well, if you want to go wild and crazy, help transform my life, because transforming lives is, is changing lives, helping lives, help people prove their lives, what it's all about. So College Pro was a big way of doing it in the for-profit world. And venture capital was a good way of doing it in, in also in the for-profit world. Philanthropy, if you, and I've met a number of the Trails graduates, when you see them and see how they've transformed their lives, and you had just a tiny bit to do with that, that is, that's got to be the most gratifying thing. As I, I did refer to the Clay Christensen uh, YouTube clip, the prof from, from Harvard Business Review, and he does say at the end of the life, end of the day, it won't be how high you climbed in an organization, how much money you made. Those, those are fine, but it will be how many lives you touched and improved it will be what you really feel is good to you and so that's i liked watching that video because i agree <laughs> yeah and you've got a group of uh at least the alumni that i know uh the two or three people in my wife's cohort when she did college pro attribute a lot of where they're at today to the experience they have with college pro so that feels good yeah thank you thank for coming you. in appreciate it welcome you've been listening to the ivy entrepreneur podcast to ensure that you never miss an episode Subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player or visit ivy.ca forward slash entrepreneurship. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.